This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, in the four months since the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court was actually able to decide on several cases brought before it. Not as many 4-4 decisions as probably a lot of people figured. Still, the decision as to who will be the ninth justice is something that many SCOTUS watchers are waiting on, and obviously now will be waiting on until after the presidential election. A couple of years ago, Bruce Allen Murphy, who's a professor of civil rights at Lafayette College, wrote an in-depth book about Justice Scalia, his life, and his time on the Supreme Court. Uh, Bruce is here at Penn as director of the Teachers Institute on the Presidency and the 2016 election that's being held by the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement and, as well, the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Nice to have you in here. Thanks for coming I'm in. Delighted to be here, Dan. Thank Th- you. Thank you. Uh, just in, in, a lot of people have talked about, you know, even in the time that he's been gone, they still talk about everything that kind of Justice Scalia was involved in in his time mm-hmm. on the court. What are kind of the, the lasting memories that, that you have teaching and now writing the book about Justice Scalia? Well, of course, as a teacher in constitutional law, you think about his cases and the dramatic and effective way in which he communicated his views. But I've been devoting the last 30 years to exploring the lives of justices who were active off the bench, who were effectively politicians in robes. And Scalia struck me as someone who was very much like Felix Frankfurter, who worked very closely with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and almost the diametric ideological opposite of my – the subject of my previous book, William O. Douglas. They were both lone wolves. They liked to communicate their ideas off the bench. They liked to give speeches. They liked to make controversial statements. They liked to write books. And they were very effective in branding themselves and, and pitching their agenda of issues beyond what the court would allow them to do. Which is interesting considering that uh, Justice Ginsburg got in a little bit of hot water, what, a week or two ago by making comments about Donald Trump. And and she came back and said, you know what, I should have kept my opinions to myself. You know, I'm glad you asked me about that because I think part of the reason why she felt comfortable speaking off the bench was because her colleague, a good friend, William uh, Antonin Scalia, had been very involved in that activity. But in 2000, It was said in Washington that Scalia was telling people, if Gore wins, I will resign. The difference is that he didn't actually give an interview or a series of interviews about that. It was just floated around the beltway, whereas Justice Ginsburg went a bit farther. And and obviously the Bush-Gore... How that played out you know, with the with the election and then everything that went around afterwards that was that was something that obviously uh, Justice Scalia was 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 a part of. It was one of his single greatest successes on the court. The other may have been the Heller case, the gun yeah. control case. Yeah. And it wasn't what Scalia wrote. It was what Scalia was able to do. He was very much, as I titled the book, a court of one. Generally, when he got there, he decided he was going to work on his own. And if people wanted to sign on to his writing, that would be fine. But he was comfortable speaking for himself. In this case, he needed four other justices. Who he really needed was Anthony Kennedy. He was very effective in lobbying Anthony Kennedy to stay on George Bush's side. And, and effectively vote in that direction and help to elect uh, George Bush. It is amazing how his use of words was 
unbelievably powerful on on so many fronts and and we don't hear as much as we probably should i think at times honestly there are times i i would i would like to hear more from a justice yes but he did and, and those words were so powerful on so many fronts he was an amazing liberal arts graduate student he yeah. was trained beautifully yeah. at georgetown clearly read widely it was his use of imagery his use of history he would use phrases that we just never heard in america legalistic argo bargo uh jiggery pokery uh these were the kinds of things that sent you to your dictionary and then sent you to google to find out the etymological background of those phrases and it had a way of branding himself. He, he said that he wrote his opinions to make them so interesting that they would be put in case books so that future generations of law students would read them. And I think a, yeah. a big part of what Scalia was doing was, even if I can't get the votes on the court, maybe through my speeches to various groups of law students and through my opinions, yeah. I can affect generations of lawyers and judges down the road. How much do you think the court has has lost uh, by not having him involved? And whether that is actual decisions on the court or his personality involved with the court? It's a very good question because I work in a small faculty. You change one member of that faculty and you've really changed a department meeting. You've really changed sure, the yeah. operation of the department. Yeah. I think what it's lost is a kind of sparkle and the kind of controversy that makes people pay attention. Yeah. Um, he is somewhat, somewhat like Donald Trump on the court in that he commands people's attention and says things that are unpredicted. Yeah. But by leaving the court, it also opens up the possibility for other people to begin to come forward to ask more questions. He yeah. was a master of controlling the agenda in oral argument. Now you have other people asking questions to to get a chance to write some opinions, not worrying about what he might be saying in dissent. So there may be pluses and there may be minuses, and yeah. it will really it will matter who the next justice is on the court, who fills that seat as to where the court's going to go. As a lot of people may remember, he obviously he has a, a town that's what forty five minutes to an hour north of us uh, in his background with Trenton, New Jersey. But but his family and his background and his dad and and his mom, how much uh, of what he ended up becoming in the court started with his mom and his dad. It's crucial in understanding Scalia. I understand Scalia more as a highly charismatic, almost dramatic actor kind of academic on the court rather yeah. than as a, a button-down, robed jurist on the court. Right. And the reason is when when he was raised, he was raised mm -hmm. by his immigrant, highly educated uh, romantic languages college professor father. Yeah. He was raised in the pre-Vatican II traditional Catholic religion. He was raised to treat words very carefully. He was the only member of his generation for both Catholic families, so they doted on him. Yeah. He was raised to respect tradition and respect history, and he was really the subject of all of their love and attention. So he had this kind of quality that demanded attention and craved attention, and I think that affected his entire life. We're talking with uh, Bruce Allen Murphy, who's a professor at uh, Lafayette College. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. 
1996. We're talking about uh, Professor Murphy's book, Scalia, A Court of One, which is out in paperback and uh, was actually first uh, out a couple of years ago. Again, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. He, he was obviously very much on point with a lot of the issues over the at the court yeah. uh, over the years, the abortion, same-sex marriage. Uh, and again, his influence in trying to craft argument on those cases ended up either, you know, leaning the court one way or another. There, there was really no gray area That's right. where, where Scalia was concerned. This is a key to understanding who Scalia is on the court, is to understand who he is in the area of argumentation. There were really two Scalia's when he was uh, being raised and going through undergraduate school at Georgetown. There was the charismatic, dramatic actor who worked in the Mask and Bobble Society. He was known as Tony Scalia. But there was the national champion college debater yeah, yeah. in the Forensic Society, the Philodemic Society at Georgetown. He was known as Nino Scalia. And he was maybe the best college debater in the late 1950s. It's a winner-take-all, dog-eat-dog kind of competitive intellectual chess. And he took no prisoners. And as he developed that persona, it affected the way he would write his opinions later on. There was no area for compromise. There was no area for collegiality, cordiality. It was just, I will make my point and I will try to bludgeon you with it. With that debating background, I guess it is no surprise that that he had the success that he did both, you know, in the courts and obviously on the Supreme Court as well. Yeah, he was the smartest guy in every room. I honestly (laughs) believe that to be the case. Here's a fellow who was appointed as the Office of Legal Counsel by Nixon at the very last couple of weeks of Nixon's administration. He gets into the Ford administration and his first job is to decide what to do with Nixon's paper. And he's got to figure out how to traverse these these minefields of problems in politics. And what he's able to do is he's able to craft these powerful legal arguments with a political direction and satisfy all sides. I've read stories uh, about him, about how he, I guess, would from time to time have lunch or have dinner with some of the other justices every once in a while. And I guess he and, and, and Justice Ginsburg... Uh, while they didn't normally, you know, all the time see eye to eye on issues, they had a kind of a, a very good relationship because of maybe in some respects a little bit of, uh, of background. They had a superb relationship. There's an opera that's been written about their relationship. If people go on YouTube, there's a wonderful video by one of the law school's law reviews. Uh, uh, using the Charlie Puth Wiz Khalifa song yeah. um, about it's been a long time and I'll see you again and and it's Scalia and Ginsburg sort of interacting. Yeah. I think the reason was they were together for years on the Court of Appeals and they were diametric opposites in terms of policy, but they enjoyed the same things. They enjoyed opera. They enjoyed good food. They enjoyed good conversation. And one of the keys, I think, to Scalia is that's the person that Ronald Reagan thought he was putting on the court. Sure, yeah. He thought this charismatic person who would take over a piano in a party at night and sing show tunes to other judges and other political figures would bring the conservative coalition together and unite them after the terrible years of the Burger year uh, court. And maybe under the Rehnquist court, he could become the William Brennan of the Rehnquist court. But in terms of his of his ability to bring the court together, he was not that way. He was a lone wolf court of one. Yeah, and, and he never—I don't think he he ever wanted to be that that 
that kind of lead persona of the court. It just didn't seem like he had that persona, whereas, you know, Justice Kennedy probably does have that that kind of persona a little bit more uh, than, than, than he might potentially have had. Yeah, I think for Scalia, it was the power of the ideas and the power of the vision. From the minute he arrived on the court, he had a bunch of older justices. He was yeah. determined to make them understand he was just as good as them, if not better. And he didn't understand the rules of the game. And in the very first case that he worked on, it was a Native American inheritance case. Yeah. And he tried to steal the opinion from Sandra Day O'Connor yeah. and took a case that should have been decided in maybe six weeks. And it stretched out until February, about five months later. And he really lost some support because of it. And he just didn't care about that. He saw it as, I am here to give you my view. I'm not here to play politics. And that's probably part of the issue that that with the court, even though it is seen as, you know, nine individuals or at least now eight individuals until we get through with the election that are supposed to be politics proof. And seemingly that's that's not the case. And, And I think now a lot of the American public understand that. Maybe in some respects, we shouldn't expect it to be politics-proof anymore. No, I think that it has changed, and it's changed since the Bork nomination in 1987. The polarized Senate, sent by a polarized national voting electorate, yeah. will produce through the confirmation process a polarized Supreme Court justice who's also been picked by a polarized president. Yeah. So what's happening on the court is people are arranged in sort of wings. You have the liberal wing, you have the conservative sure. wing, yep. and then you have one, maybe two justices in the middle who are called the swing justices, but they're really not. They're the tipping justices. They're the yeah. fifth vote. Scalia never saw himself as that fifth justice. No. <laughs> he was more comfortable sitting on the wing, yeah. but he learned how to play the game. I mentioned the Heller case, the gun yeah, control yeah, case. Yeah. He actually, now he's a textualist. He believes in the reading of the words and the use of the dictionary. Sure. He's an originalist. He believes in looking at the history to see how these words were used at the time of the framing. Right. But he changes the meaning and the words of the Second Amendment from keep and bear arms to the right of self-defense. And if you look at the yeah. opinion, that's what he's talking about. Why? to get Anthony Kennedy, who can be a libertarian. That's something I can sign on to. So even though he doesn't necessarily agree, Kennedy, with Scalia's originalism, he can sign on to this libertarian view of self-defense. Is it, is it one of the hard things of, of the court in this day and age to, to take the words that were written a couple of hundred years ago, some of them, and some of them obviously since then, and, and apply them to what's going on today, because, look, let's be honest, what we've got going on here in this country and around the world now in 2016, certainly there was no, never a thought uh, of this type of, uh, of lifestyle, of, of this type of culture 100 years ago. Right. So it's, it's a hard thing, I think, at times to kind of transmit one to the other, but seemingly... I, I think at times he had the idea that he had the ability to do that. Yeah, the, he did He did believe that he could freeze time and maybe come up with an answer that other people wouldn't see. But I, I think it's almost impossible to do with any clear certainty. Just doing the history, the best historians of that era say that you cannot determine what is the actual meaning of words because there's so much disagreement and there's yeah. so much history that's in dispute. It matters which historian you're reading 
yeah. which interpretation you're following. It's a starting point, Dan. And one of the things is some of the very best originalists now are, in fact, on the opposite ideological side. Stephen Breyer, yeah. in the presidential recess appointment case, does a wonderful job of evolutionary originalism. He looks at the changing meaning of the Constitution as different congresses and presidents sure. and Supreme Court justices interpret it. We are joined here in the studio by uh, Bruce uh, Murphy, who is a professor at uh, Lafayette College. His book, Scalia, A Court of One, uh, has been out for a couple of years, uh, out in paperback as well. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Jackie joins us from Pittsburgh. Jackie, welcome. Hey, thank you. Uh, first, I want to give a shout-out to Lafayette College. My daughter attends there, and uh, uh, high regard for the school. But secondly, I understand that uh, when Ginsburg was appointed to the court, she made it a point that uh, every day that the court was in session, that everyone attending that day had to have lunch together. And that was implemented by her. And not only did she implement that, but she had to buy tableware, silverware, and everything to have that prepared for all the uh, justices, because that wasn't the uh, case in the you know <laughs> case. But that wasn't the... Uh, the norm. Justice did that in the past, and she felt that that would get everybody to talk. And not only, you know, it's a typical workplace uh, team building uh, session. So uh, I was wondering if he had heard that or. It's a, it's a wonderful point, and, and thank you very much for your support of Lafayette. Um, in the old days, uh, I, you're exactly right. Uh, Justice Ginsburg did institute that to get the justices talking to each other, which was not common in the earlier days because they didn't really have to. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have the kind of e-memos that are being sent around now. So justices would go up and down the halls and begin to lobby each other, and they had lots of opportunities to speak to each other in conferences. The modern court, though, does most of their work through memo writing and through uh, emails, and so they, they're in nine separate offices, and they, and they don't get to see each other enough. And, and the conferences aren't really conferences anymore. They're more announcements of opinions and the, and the tallying of votes. So I think this process of getting people to, to socialize with each other and to talk to each other, if it's only in a lunch, is a very good uh, turn of events for the court. Jackie, thanks very much for, uh, for the comment. 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to jump in and uh, have a comment or ask a question as well. Uh, so, I mean, we sit here with the political process going on we sit with the court done for the for the summer uh having really made I, I as i kind of alluded to at the top a lot more cases were decided than i think probably a lot of people figured how about yourself well i think you're exactly right it's a tribute to the leadership of uh, chief justice john roberts he yeah. was able to navigate his way through what a, was a very sticky situation you had a balanced 4-4 yeah. court and you had they had set up a series of cases to try to determine where the court would go in the future, anticipating a conservative majority. This will be the first court if Hillary Clinton wins and is able to either ratify the appointment of Barack Obama or appoint someone herself. It will be the first court in my professional lifetime, 45 years, that is not uh, controlled by a majority of Republican president appointees. So what does the court do? The court tries to find ways to find agreement uh, over these issues that they can narrow the issue down and maybe solve some of these problems. 
So we get an answer in abortion. We get an answer in affirmative action. Yeah. We don't get an answer in immigration yet. We're still in a situation, though, that the, that the Congress is Republican-controlled. And so we could be looking at a, a very lengthy process to try and get that ninth Supreme Court justice uh, confirmed because of, if you know, with the, the diametric opposition of, of Congress and the White House at this point. Exactly right. And one of the things that people don't understand is it's a nine-month uh, term of office for the, for the court. Yeah. So they're hearing a lot of the arguments for the appeals in the early part of the fall, yep. and it will take them several months to write the final opinion. If that seat is vacant, and it looks like it will be for yeah. quite some time, and then it means that there'll be no ninth justice to hear those oral arguments. So yeah. the entire next year might be lost that's as what, well. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because you're, you're talking about going from what, uh, late August or early September right. uh, through uh, through June. It's the first Monday in October. You're right. Yeah. And it goes actually, you're right, all the way through June. Yeah. So it, it it's we're not looking at, at any change maybe until after January 20th. Possibly. Yeah. And then you've got the confirmation process. It could take all next term just to get somebody seated. And again, who do, who do you think is probably, I mean, is it going to be uh, uh, Mr. Gardner that we've been hearing about quite a bit? Well, tell me who wins the 2016 yeah. presidential yeah. election yeah. and tell me tell me who wins the Senate. And I have a better chance. Yeah. It's, it's an unfortunate situation because Judge Garland is so qualified, 19 years on the District of Columbia, Court of Appeals, everyone reveres him. Yeah. He was in the top pool for the last two appointments by Barack Obama. He's a moderate liberal, um, and he's a, a guy who has a lot of supporters. He's just caught in this political riptide. Yeah. So there are some things that can happen. Maybe after the election, the Republicans decide, okay, he's the best we can get. He's the most conservative of the of the liberal justices. Let's go ahead and confirm him. Yeah. Maybe there's a possibility of Barack Obama looking at a recess appointment. Uh, maybe there's some kind of an arrangement made, or maybe we just wait until the next uh, president is uh, inaugurated. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get any kind of a deal between now and the time that President Obama... They're not in a deal-making no, mode. No, no, not at all. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much for coming in today. Greatly Thank you, appreciate Dan. It. Thank I enjoyed you. it. Bruce Murphy, the book is Scalia, Court of One, uh, available out in paperback uh, right now as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.